Have you ever heard the term jumping the shark? It's a term that's come to mean when something has reached its pinnacle and then they do something and this next thing that happens is the beginning of the downfall. This term comes from the, the popular TV series of the 1970s and early 1980s, Happy Days. And in 1977, uh, there were, Happy Days broadcast an episode in which Arthur Fonzarelli, one of the main characters of Happy Days, the, the greaser, the tough guy, he's in the ocean water skiing. And of course, he's water skiing with his leather jacket on, and he has this weird-looking life preserve thing that goes around his waist. And as he's water skiing, there's a shark that's swimming in front of him, and he has to jump the shark in order to be safe. And of course, he does it, and everybody cheers. Television historians see that episode in 1977 as the moment the downfall, the decline of happy days began. And it's come to mean, jumping the shark has come to mean something that was once great, now in decline. Here's the thing though. Happy days continue to air new episodes for another seven years. If, if that episode was, was the, the, the beginning of the end for happy days, how could it have run for another seven seasons? Some speculate that it had been so popular by the time that episode aired that it was able to continue on for many more years, not based on its present reality at that time, but based on its laurels, based on previous laurels. And in fact, almost every year after 1977, the ratings for Happy Days, the popularity of Happy Days, did decline. The year after Jumping the Shark, they went from number one to number two. The year after that, they went from number two to number four. The year after that, they went from number four to number 17. And by the time Happy Days aired its last episode, there were 62 other television shows that were more popular than Happy Days. It had survived so long because of past charms more than present reality. And that is the story of the church and the city that we are going to be looking at today. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. And we are in the fifth part of this sermon series, Seven Pictures, in which we're looking at seven pictures that are given to us by God through seven letters that Jesus sent to seven churches in Asia Minor that, that John distributed through his book, Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1 is where I will be, be beginning. And I'm going to read this letter in its entirety because it's six verses. It's the shortest letter of all the letters. So it's only six verses. So I'll be reading it through in its entirety. And to the angel or to the messenger, as some versions say, of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what re remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, if you will not wake up, 
I will come like a thief, and you will not know of what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name or her name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. By the time John is sending this letter from Jesus to the church in Sardis, the city of Sardis and the church have jumped the shark. They didn't know it, but this is what had happened. You see, the city of Sardis, at one point in history, had, had been a, a powerful, a magnificent, a, a resplendent city. It had been a wealthy city, and in fact, it still actually was quite a wealthy city. But now their, their money, now their wealth, was maybe what we would refer to as old money. It was dwindling. It didn't seem to have the same impact or the, the same luster or the same shine that it once had had. One historian said of Sardis that it stood, at one point in time, it stood like, a, like some gigantic watchtower guarding the Hermus Valley. But by the time of this letter, by the time Jesus addresses these words to this church in this city, the city was living more off of past glory than present reality. The archaeologist Sir William Ramsey stated that nowhere was there a greater example of the melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay. He said Sardis was a city of degeneration. It had jumped the shark. It was going downhill. They were still a wealthy city. They still perceived themselves to be great but it was not truly who they were. What led this city to this state of being, to this situation that it was in? Well, there's a couple things that I want to point out. The first is, is arrogance. And there's a story actually from Sardis's history that, that illustrates this arrogance of the city perfectly. The greatest of the Sardinian kings was, was Croesus. He was, it was with him that Sardis reached its highest pinnacles, but it was also with, under him that, that, that Sardis faced its greatest disaster in its history. Croesus had been warned by Salone, the Athenian lawgiver, uh, considered one of the wisest men in, in all of Greece. He had been warned that, that his people and his city had begun to become soft. They had become complacent. They had become too comfortable they, they, they had started to, to listen to the voices telling them how great they were, and they were believing it. And Salone said to the king, in a, in a statement of warning, he said, call no man happy until he is dead. What Salone meant by this was, was don't become overly satisfied. Don't, don't think you've achieved the pinnacle yet. Always strive for more. Don't become content with where you're at. But Croesus did not listen. He continued on in his arrogance, and as kings are prone to do within uh, 
history then and even in these times. He went out to make war, but he took his, his soft army of, of soft people who, who started to see themselves as, as unbeatable. And he led the Sardinians to war against Cyrus of Persia. And even as he was going out to war, once again he received a warning. The famous oracle at Adelphi told Croesus, If you cross the river Halys, you will destroy a great empire. Croesus took this as a promise that he would annihilate the Persians. He never even considered that it was his empire that could be destroyed. But when the dust settled after the battle, Croesus and his soft army and his arrogance were defeated and limping back to Sardis. The second reason the, the city of Sardis was in the state that they were in, living on past glory rather than present reality, was, was because they had failed to keep watch. They had failed to stay awake. They had failed to stay on guard. Sardis was built on a hill so steep that it was considered a natural citadel and its defenses seemed secure. The location of the city made, made all the citizens and all the rulers and all the soldiers within that city become overconfident. As a result, the city walls were often carelessly left unguarded. The city was captured twice in their history. First by Cyrus after this battle with Croesus, and then later by Antiochus. On both occasions, enemy troops climbed the precipice by night and found that the Sardinians had set no guards. They thought they were so powerful that they didn't need any guards. The city was captured and destroyed because of the overconfidence of the citizens and the failure of them to keep watch. The reason all this history regarding the city of Sardis is important to us in the context of this letter to the church that resides in that city is because it seems that the, the, the Christian church in Sardis has taken on the characteristics of the city of Sardis. It too has jumped the shark. It is still perceived by those in the church and, and by many outside the church to be a top-notch church. Jesus said to them, what did he say to them? You have the reputation of being alive. People look at you and they see you as alive and, 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 and a church of substance. But the reputation that they have with others, the reputation this church has with others, doesn't matter. Jesus sees this church's true state and he says, but you are dead. But you are dead. We see ourselves as, as alive, but, but Jesus says, you jumped the shark. And you're all the way down now, and you are dead. Why is the church in this position? Because they, like the city, do not realize their true condition. Dr. Siv Tonstead writes this, Believers in Sardis are in a state of denial, far removed from reality, in part because their society applauds them. They've listened to the voices that have said they're great. They've measured themselves against the standards 
maybe of the other churches around them. And they think to themselves, you know, we're pretty, pretty awesome. Whatever it is about this church to the outside world that makes them seem like a great church, like, like the standard bearer of churches, the reality is that they aren't even actually a church. What do I mean by that? Well, the church is the body of Christ. That's what the Bible tells us. And we know that the body of Christ is, is living and is active and is, and, is, and is on mission and is committed to the cause of Christ. The body of Christ is not dead. As Brian Blount indicates, this is why John uses the word name four times in his short letter. This wordplay emphasizes the problem, he says, with the church in Sardis. They have become a church in name only, not an actual function or mission or existence. They are not a living, breathing, Jesus-representing church. They are a church in name only. And again, they don't even realize it, which is why Jesus has to tell them to wake up. Y'all ponder that for a moment. A church can think it is a church. A church can think it is alive. A church can have everyone else or most everyone else thinking that it is a church of some significance, that it is a church of some great substance, that it is a church that, that other churches should measure themselves against. And really, it is dead. We would maybe say it is possible for a church to think of themselves more highly than they ought. Nearly 20 years ago, a very large church within our denomination was searching for a new senior pastor. I happened to know one of the individuals on that church. I was somewhat connected to this church. I wasn't working there, but I had a lot of connections at that church. And, and I knew someone on the search committee, and I knew that they were reaching out to the most prominent pastors within our denomination, the most, the most significant pastors, we would say, maybe by, by, by popularity within our denomination. And I was asking uh, this, this friend of mine that was a member of the search committee how it was going. And this person said to me, we aren't getting a lot of response. Then he began to tell me about their search process. As I, as I listened to the search process, it was ridiculous, especially considering the individuals that they were courting. The things that they were asking them to do in order to be considered. I asked, why are you asking these candidates, especially some of these candidates, to jump through all these hoops? And here was this search committee member's response. Because we need them to show us that they want to be here. They had this view of themselves that they were something that was so special that, that, that people needed to prove to them that they're worthy to be considered. But some of us on the outside saw something those inside the church did not see. The church was large, but, but by many measures it seemed to be dying, if not maybe in some ways already dead. And no one was going to jump through those hoops to, to come to this place. In the previous year, this church of nearly 3,000 members 
had had a net growth of three people. A couple summers prior to that, the church had canceled vacation Bible school because they couldn't get anybody to volunteer. Out of 3,000 members, there was no one that was willing to say for one week, we'll take the time to care for our children, to teach our children about Jesus. As dialoguing with someone on staff there a few days after this conversation with this search committee member, and being the opinionated person that I am, and I was probably even more opinionated nearly 20 years ago, I said, if you keep viewing your church the way you are, as more highly than you ought, you're never going to get anyone to come here. I said this church is not a place that a lot of people want to go. I told them, if not for the, for the other institutions around you, I don't think anybody would come, want to come here. They, of course, became defensive. I mean, they were on the staff there. They were on the team. The staff member did not appreciate what I was saying. We were good friends, so I could get away with it, but, but they definitely pushed back, and you could tell they were annoyed. Well, many months passed, and, and at last, someone did agree to take a call to that church. And, and this individual that agreed to take that call to that church was a very good pastor, was a very strong pastor, a very able pastor. It wasn't someone that was on their, their top tier, but it was still someone very, very good. That pastor began to make the transition there. The family, his family had not moved from his previous location to where this church was, but, but he was beginning to make the transition and coming back and forth. And a few weeks into this pastor's tenure there, I was again talking to my friend who was on the team at that church, and he had reached out to me and said to me, I think you might have been right about our church. They said, you know, and he mentioned the name of the person that they had hired. He's decided to leave after just three weeks, he decided he no longer wanted to be at that church. And this team member was realizing their church may not be what they perceived it to be. A couple years later, I was sitting next to that pastor in a meeting, and I, I, the pastor had been hired by this church for those three weeks. And I leaned over to him and I said, hey, so whatever happened at such and such a church? He looked at me and he said, after one week, I saw the underbelly of that church and I could not get out of there fast enough. He said, I called my, my former employer and I said, is my job still available? And they said, yes, come on back. I called my wife and told her what, what I was experiencing and she said, let's not go there. And, and she stopped packing and I went home as quickly as possible. A church that looks alive, is large, has abundance of programs, but is really dead. In the last days, many churches will look alive, but they will actually be dead. That's one of the points of Sardis, of this letter to Sardis. There are Christians who will think they are alive, but they are actually dead. So what is the antidote to this to this condition. How do we avoid being a church 
How do we avoid being a church? How do we avoid being one of those churches that, that, that everyone tells them they're alive, that they themselves think they're alive, but, but Jesus looks at them and says, man, you're dead. How do we avoid being Christians, living in a fantasy, thinking we are still climbing when really we've jumped the shark and we're on the decline? Maybe if we're already a dead church or a dead Christian, how do we come out of this? Revelation, again, chapter 3 and verse 2. Jesus begins his counsel for how to come away from this because there is a way out. The great thing about Jesus is that, that, that he, he always shows us a way out. And again, he's showing this church a way out of their condition. And it begins with these words. Wake up! Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. A synonymous translation of the phrase, wake up, is be watchful, or better yet even, keep watching. And this is the first antidote against being or becoming a church or a Christian that thinks of themselves more highly than they ought to. This is, this is one of the primary antidotes against becoming a, a church or a Christian that thinks they're alive when really they are dead. According to William Barclay, no commandment appears more frequently in the New Testament than the command to watch. Than the command to watch. Watchfulness, being awake to our reality, must be a consistent part, a constant state of being for every single Christian. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than, we have, than when we first believed. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13. Be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Or what about the very red letter words of Jesus himself? Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation for, for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Or Mark chapter 13 and verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. These are Jesus' words. Jesus' directions, commands from Jesus. These are just a few of the verses that remind us that being vigilant is an absolute essential aspect for every Christian church and every Christian living in the world in the last days. We cannot think it is okay to just get by on past laurels. We cannot think we are a church that is worthy of something because we have enough money. We cannot think and believe we are a church that's worthy of something just because we have a great number of people. We cannot think, I work for the church, therefore I am good. The Bible says to us, wake up! And then Jesus gives three instructions. Remember, keep, and repent. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. Remember Keep, repent. The word remember is a present imperative, which simply 
just means that we would say, rather than just remember, we would translate this, keep remembering. Don't just remember for a moment, but continue to remember day in and day out. The Revelation scholar at Andrews University, Dr. Renko Stepanovich, said, remembering means keeping afresh the past and applying it to the present. Keeping afresh the past and applying it to the present. When I read that quote from Dr. Stefanovich, I thought specifically about the Spencerville Church. And I thought about our past in the context of our present. This church, and I speak now for, for my local church, and you may want to think about these words within the context of your local church if you are not a member of Spencerville. But this church, the Spencerville Church, was built on this commitment, was built on, on this vision to share Jesus with everyone around them, with all those in the neighborhood around them. This, this, this vision, this, this past reality of this church began with just two people, Ray and Anita Doyle, the the great-grandparents of my brother-in-law. They were asked to give Bible studies. Ray and Anita were asked to give Bible studies to two sisters living in the Burtonsville area. They agreed to give these Bible studies to these two individuals, and, and then they were joined by three others who wanted to study the Bible. Eventually, all five of these individuals were baptized by F.D. Nickel, who was, who was the overseer of, of the Hyattsville Seventh-day Adventist Church at that time, along with being the editor of the Adventist Review. And they decided, these five people, along with Ray and Anita Doyle, these seven individuals decided that they would go door to door in every neighborhood in this area to tell people about the love of Jesus. They began to gather a few others to to go out on mission with them, to share Jesus with others. Here is what Ella Mae Robinson, the, the granddaughter of Ellen White, wrote about the beginnings of this church, the Spencerville Church. Ella Mae Robinson, Ellen White's granddaughter, I can but think of the days when our dear sister Doyle, with prayers and entreaties, gathered all whom she could persuade into a working group. Week after week on Sabbath afternoons, we plodded up and down those long country roads, sometimes wiping perspiration from our faces, at other times shielding them from the wintry blizzards, knocking on doors and leaving leaflets that told the good news of Jesus' soon return. From those original two, Ray and Anita Doyle, we are now more than 2,000. But do we... Do we need to remember their commitment? Are we making our, their, our past also our present reality to share Jesus? Are we wiping the perspiration from our faces or shielding them from the blast of the snowy winters just to tell our communities about the love and the sacrifice and, and the soon coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ? If theirs was the standard of an alive church, could we claim such a living status for ourselves in the here and now. After Jesus said, remember your past, he then said, keep it. 
Keep what you have heard. Keep what you've learned. Keep it. In other words, the gospel that compels us to go forth is not something we do once in a while. The, the gospel that we remember, the, the good news of Jesus that we remember is not something that compels us to go forth once in a while. We keep on keeping on as is said. Barclay says this statement to keep on is a warning against spasmatic Christianity, hit and miss Christianity. In other words, we don't just remember the past at the 75th anniversary or as a nice story within a sermon. We remember and we do, and we remember, and we do, and we remember, and we do again. And then finally, the last directed by Jesus. Repent. And whereas the words remember and keep were present imperatives, so keep remembering and keep keeping, keep doing, the word repent is an aorist imperative, which indicates a singular, decisive moment to break from our present condition and be who God called us to be. And brothers and sisters, he called us to be a church. A church not in name only. Many of those will exist in the last days. But to be a church living for the glory of God. Not a church living on past glory, but a church that brings the glory from the past and makes it our, the, the reality of our present. I want to speak specifically to the church, the Spencerville Church family right now, but, but wherever you are, I would encourage you to listen to these words and apply them to your situation, to your church, to, to your own heart. Spencer Real Family. Are we, think about it, are we as much of a church as Ray and Anita Doyle and their five converts were in 1940? I mean, I mean we're a larger church we're a more affluent church. We're a more refined church. But, but are we more of a church or less of a church by the commission and the calling of Jesus Christ? When, when they started that church, when Ray and Anita started that church, there was no GC. There was an easy little drive down the 200 or down New Hampshire Road. There was no NAD. There was an easy little drive up, of, up 29. There was no academy filling this church and giving some joy and life to this church. They had none of that. They weren't even wanted by the conference that they were in. If we took all those things away, if we took all those things we have now away, those institutions, who would we be? Who would Spencerville be? Ray and Anita were not pastors. The five people who were baptized were not pastors. 
and yet they went door to door and according to the record books that have been kept of our church and, and the record that, that Merle uh, 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 put together and the record that, that Rick Blondo put together, these seven people with a few others, including Ellen White's granddaughter, went door to door for 20 straight weeks, 20 straight weekends, to make sure that every neighborhood around this church received the message of Jesus Christ. And less than two years from when they began going door to door, there was now a church that had gone from those five converts to 39 individuals organized in that church. Brothers and sisters, are we as much of a church as they were? Are we ready to surrender our all to Jesus? Are we ready to wake up, to remember, to keep on doing, and to repent from where we have strayed? Are we ready to be all Jesus called us to be? A church, not just a church by name, not just a church by the perception of others, not just a church by the standard of this world, not even a church by the standard of our denomination, which may hold us up and say, now here is an example church. But are we willing to be a church according to the will and the commission and the calling of Jesus Christ? A calling that says, go, not this is where you go to be, but rather the church is a group that goes. Will you commit to this right now with me? Are you willing to surrender all? Surrender time, surrender pride, surrender position. In order to be a church that's alive, not by the world standards, but in the eyes of Jesus. Will you join me in repenting? for becoming a church where people primarily just go and not a church that goes as Jesus commissioned us to do. Will you surrender with me to the will of Jesus for this church and for our own hearts? Lord Jesus, I pray, do whatever you must in each one of us and do what you must corporately in our church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Spencerville Church, so that we will be alive, not by the standards of this world, not by the standards of man or the denomination, but by the standards of you, Jesus Christ, alive for your honor and glory. Lord, may we remember the past and may we carry it, as Stefanovich said, and make it our present reality as well, our present glory also. Lord, as we prepare for the last days and we are in those last days, as we prepare for these days, Jesus, make us, call us, help us to hear 
and surrender. So Jesus, you will be lifted up and all men will come to know and love you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.